This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Hello and welcome to the brand new episode of Tabletop Genesis. This is Mike Lord. This is Ellie. This is Simon. Hi, this is Stacy. This is Tom. And we are here today to talk about the Genesis album, We Can't Dance, the last recorded album with Phil Collins on it, doing vocals and drums, from officially released in 1991, late 1991. And as we jump into this, do we want to jump right into Simon doing the Wikipedia review? Oh, can we? (laughs) (laughs) That's why I came. Right. We Can't Dance is the 14th studio album from the English rock band Genesis, released in November 1991 on Virgin Records in the United Kingdom and Atlantic Records in the United States. It is their last recorded album with drummer and lead singer Phil Collins. They just stole that from my intro. I said it there myself. (laughs) Uh, Comma. Before his departure in 1996 to pursue solo projects. Production began after a four-year period of inactivity from the group following the commercial success of Invisible Touch and the tour. We Can't Dance was a worldwide commercial success for the band. It became the band's fifth consecutive number one album in the UK and reached number four in the United States, where it sold over four million copies. Between 1991 and 1993, six tracks from the album were released as singles, including No Son of Mine, I Can't Dance, and the latter received a Grammy Award nomination for Best Pop Performance by a duo or group with vocals. Genesis toured in support of We Can't Dance in 1992, which saw the band play large stadiums and arenas across North America and Europe. So before we jump into track by track, what do people think of this album in general? What's kind of your you know, overall impression of this album? Too long. (laughs) That's exactly uh, what I was going to lead off with. Uh, If I were to cut this album down, and it's funny because it is is a long album. It's 70, 71 minutes or so. And I would probably cut Since I Lost You um, and Never a Time. And I might add in On the Shoreline. But I'm actually not sure about that. I like On the Shoreline, but after listening to it more closely, I kind of get why it was a B-side. But that's that's my edit of this. I'd still keep it probably around a 60-minute album or so. What I would do is I would, I would cut Never a Time, Tell Me Why, Way of the World, Since I Lost You, and I replace it with On the Shoreline. Okay, so, and it, so if you four did, down, one up. Four down, one up. It would be like the same length of like Invisible Touch. Okay. Mine is very close, except I would leave on Living Forever. So I would take off Never a Time, Tell Me Why, Since I Lost You, and I'd put on On the Shoreline. No, but I said Living, I, I'm keeping Living Forever. Oh, me too then. <laughs> <laughs> way of the World is the one oh, I would, I would take Oh, I, I would keep that on. So you would keep Way of the I World? I would keep Way of the World. I got down, got down uh, Never a Time. Since I lost you and maybe hold on my heart, it's a song that I like, but it's, it's just that it's, 
to mellow. <laughs> and then I would add maybe on the shoreline, which I really like. Yeah. I would have uh, just released uh, Fading Lights as a CD single. And that's it. <laughs> and, that's it. <laughs> and be done with it. There you go. The rest of the time could be spent down the pub. Ah, okay. <laughs> so. I think the length of the CD has to do with right around that time we were really entering the digital age. Right. This was the first one that I strictly bought on CD. And I think that CD, you know, the length allowed them to kind of put on a little bit more than they, they would have in the past. And I was thinking about the difference between album-heavy releases and now that they're moving into the 90s and digital like Genesis Genesis in 83, the first song on track on side two, what is that song? Silver yeah. Rainbow. Illegal Alien. Oh, it was. Yes, it was. Yes. And for Invisible Touch, what's the first song on side two? Anything She Does. Anything She Does. Silver Rainbow. <laughs> and what's the first song on side two of We Can't Dance? I couldn't tell there you. There is no side to it. Right. <laughs> it's just if I flip the disc over, just scratched in the in the player. So, I, so I was like, wow, that's so weird. How like even our minds are looking at this as a start to finish album, whereas up until that point, we're all like, all right, that's the end of side one. Let's let's right. flip it over, listen to side two. And I think maybe that was a detriment to the album that sure. if they had been confined to an LP size, they would have probably cut off about two or three tracks, and it would have been like a more cohesive work. I think the term is CD bloat. Right. And I think nowadays it seems a lot of CDs are coming in at around that hour mark, I think, which I think people have figured out over, over you know, 25 years since the release of this album that 70 minutes is probably too much for a single sitting of music. In the 70s, that would have been a double album. Exactly, yeah. sure. And actually, I think on the vinyl re-release, this is a double album. And I think maybe what, even if it came out on vinyl in 91, it was probably a double album. So you figure this has almost twice as much music as Nursery Crime. Nursery right. Crime came in at like 38 something, 39 yeah, yeah. minutes. Yeah. And this is almost double that. So <laughs> right. there you go. So it has to be twice as good, right? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one thing which I will say that this album held its place in my heart was because this was the first one that I consider myself present for the release. Right. I got into the band in 86, Invisible Touch had already been released. It was hearing the songs on the radio, being, oh, this, this is interesting. I think I'll check into this band. So between 86 and 91, when this came out, I went back. I got everything Genesis did. I was an expert in their catalog. I knew everything inside out. So when this was announced that it was coming up, it was like, okay, I am ready now. I'm eagerly anticipating I'm the next. For this release. And so. I remember, as it was yesterday, as if it were yesterday, November 12th, 1991, it's a Tuesday, because in America they release albums on a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. My friend Rob and I were in college. We drove to the record store, bought this on CD. It was probably one of those long boxes. Yeah, Remember the long yeah. boxes? Drove back to our dorm, put it on the stereo, and he sat on the couch, I sat on the chair, and we said, all right, press play. And we just digested the album start to finish. Cool. So it was, it was definitely definitely big in my, in my memory, sure. burned. Um, so if, if any time that I'm going over songs and my, you know, opinions on them, if I slip into we, it's only because I'm thinking of my friend and I when we first listened to it. The royal we. Yeah. Oh, well, we thought this was, yeah. I, I remember, I think I, I was, you and I are basically, we're probably juniors in college at the yeah. same time. And I think I knew that the album was coming out. And so one day on the radio, the song starts, tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. And I, without even knowing it, I said, that's the new Genesis song. I mean, within the first two seconds, I had kind of ID'd this as, 
oh, this is Genesis. And then when Tony's keyboard comes in, I'm like, yeah, this is Genesis. <laughs> and when Phil started singing, I said, oh, yeah, uh, this is this is it. So it was it was that kind of you knew it was coming, and so maybe I was primed to hear it, but I was it was something I hadn't heard on the radio before. So I was like, oh yeah, this is this is it. I was glad I was right about it. So. You know, it was. It, I have that memory also of hearing it. I didn't have a roommate to really bond with about it, but I appreciate that. Yeah, I know. Sad. I, I can like pop round whenever you like. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. So, but yeah, that was my introduction to this. I, I, on the way down here, I said to Ellie that my overall impression of this album is actually I thought it was a return to form. Not that I disliked Invisible Touch, but I thought that this sounded more like Genesis. The drums were real. It, it felt more like a band playing in a room together, whereas Invisible Touch was a bit more produced in that respect, that it didn't sound as much like a band playing together as they had in the past. And it also, to me, sounds more like that return to form and the fact there's so much instrumental music yeah. on this album, too. I mean, it is a long album. We were just talking about it. But if you look at the proportion of... Uh, music with lyrics and without it's pretty high on the instrumentals there's no instrumental track right. but they you know they're they're breathing a little bit easier here and right. you know taking the time and exploring it musically a little bit more which i like and i love the return of the acoustic drums as well i mean they sound really great on this album but when i got into this album when i first heard it this was when I had Genesis' other two albums <laughs> uh, Genesis and Invisible <laughs> Touch and i heard Genesis had you know we can't dance coming out and it really did nothing for me when i first okay. heard it i i was like oh well it's okay right. it's you know it's a huge phil collins fan so i you know i did purchase it liked mm -hmm. it for a time but i was in a totally different um music space at that point in my right. life and it wasn't until two or three years later when i discovered the true back catalog that they had mm -hmm. um that i came back and revisited this, this album later on and then it just started to grow on me a little bit more so i'm gonna say though this is probably my least favorite album of this lineup okay um but it is still a really good album and their high points are really high on here for me okay i, I i'm coming from a, a similar direction as stacy mm -hmm. at this point I was done as a Genesis fan. Okay. I, I was no longer a fan of the band at this okay. point. When they released this album, I didn't buy it. <laughs> uh, I saw a couple of things on the, uh, on the TV and I thought it sounded Genesis-y. <laughs> um, it wasn't uh, until, much like Stacy, a few years later, when I saw The Way We Walk uh, live, mm -hmm. the DVD, that I actually connected with some of the tracks. Okay. Um, and then I went and listened to it, um, and that that was really when I started to uh, to understand the album uh, as a complete whole. I think what happened is that I had been... The best way to describe it is that the band and I love had been taken over by teenagers. <laughs> sure. That's how I felt about this band in the 1980s. Yeah. And as a result, I abandoned them. Right. It's, just, it's no... No fault of theirs. Uh, I just said, you're no son of mine. No. Um, you know, I just, it was just, it was a time in my life where, much like Stacey, I'd moved on to other things musically. Um, and that was, you know, I'd moved on from listening to a, from, to a lot of progressive rock. I'd stopped listening to a huge amount of that. Uh, and um, Genesis, for me at this point, felt like a page that had been turned. And it was really only in later years that I came back to it. 
and I agree with Stacey. It's it's um, it's probably the the weakest of all of their Collins Banks Rutherford lineup, in my opinion. But that said, it also contains one of my favourite tracks by them <laughs> of all of the uh, right. uh, eras. Right. It, it much like the seventies album. This was an album I discovered in hindsight. Right. Okay. Hey, fair enough. I think it's it's fascinating fascinating to hear people's impressions of an album and how it changes over time i no, i have to say that i bought this album not when it came out but a few maybe years later not for any particular reason but i loved it because i began listening to genesis in the late 80s and as tom said i got all the back catalogs cds cassettes whatever i could get my hands on and uh, but I, it's a long album and again it took me a while to digest it i could hear songs here and there and uh but I love it, I have to say. Yeah, I, I love it also. I, I, I'm i surprised that people look at it as the weakest of the three-man lineup. But I can, but I'm not going to argue about that either. Because, Good. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It will be settled by arm wrestling. So. <laughs> but I think that it's it's... It does have... I've had different moments with this album where I kind of got tired of it. I think I really liked it when it first came out. Then... I kind of was like, Ugh, after a while with it. And and now I'm back in a space where I I see a lot more of it. And I really, especially after listening to it again for this podcast, again, yes, there are things I would change about that, but there are things I'd change about everything. So, you know, that's not abnormal. So, yeah, I think that this is, this is a solid album. Again, I'll say return to form and leave it with that. So with that... We will move on to the very first track of this album, No Son of Mine. How I could 
was one of the darker tracks in Genesis' catalog, I think. And the fact they start out the album with something like this is uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, it's it's one of those tracks that, you know, it's it's a, it is a great opener. I think the sound and the atmosphere of it, again, you know, it's a statement of intent for the album and but you're right i mean it's 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 a depressing song because it's about this kid who you know left his home abusive family abusive father goes back to maybe see if things changed or things got better and the father's still a dick and <laughs> you know is nothing gets better in that respect there's a lot of family issues on opening tracks I and mean, when you consider that only two albums previously where they were yelling he was yelling mama right <laughs> right this is about that's about the dad so yeah yeah well, i think it he was probably more than a dick the dad yeah i was, <laughs> I was being a little low-key about that but uh, it, it is one of those where i think the opening track it it does really grab you from the beginning the only track that I probably would have put instead of this would have been on the shoreline. I think that would have sure. been a good opener. But this is a great opener. I think it's a better opener than Invisible Touch was for Invisible Touch. Okay. Because that just started, and you're, like, you're into a pop track right away, whereas this one kind of like sets the mood going forward. And uh, I'd gotten this before the album came out as like a single. <laughs> you can hear that. I'm, I love the word. <laughs> I will be loaning it to, back to the Smithsonian after this. <laughs> <laughs> But I remember it, the first time we, play, we played it on our cassette players, our, um, our friend Rob and I, we heard that opening TikTok, and at first we were like, okay, is this Time by Pink Floyd? Because sure, it has right? that same, you know. But then it starts off with that, which they call the elephant chord for, right. from Mike Rutherford, and then, you know, it's, it's really Genesis. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the subject matter is very, very heavy. I remember uh, they did six songs from this album on this tour. Okay. Uh, and I think half of them worked, translated well into concert. I don't think the other half did work that well. Okay. And I would put this into the category of not working very well. Thank you. Yeah, I wrote. <laughs> I actually was going to mention that this is one of those rare tracks in Genesis catalog that um, works better for me on the album than live. Right, and I think part of it is because one, there's it just it's verse chorus verse chorus. I don't think there's any bridge to yeah, it at all. No real and really. when the audience sings along they're singing the part of the abusive father. That's the part that's really yeah. weird. Right, right. Everyone's singing, you're no son. You're no. Well, wait, that makes me the bad guy. Yeah. So it's a little off-putting. And I think I was disappointed when they pulled it out again in 2007. Because I was yeah. like, all right, you know, it was great to do it on the tour that that album is support, you know, the tour that's supporting mm -hmm. the album. And then when he did it back in 2007, I'm like, all right, maybe they're throwing that album a bone, but I could have done without it. And I think the crowd could have even done without it too. Because mm -hmm. it kind of, brings the show to a uh, kind of a standstill and then it picks back up after the song. Okay. But, you know, despite that, I think this is one of the best top lines that Phil has ever sung. Yes. Like, it's so melodic and he sings it beautifully. I mean, I was telling Simon the other day, this reminds me of his Trick of the Tail vocals. Okay. He's not very shouty. Um, and it, like I said, it's just very beautiful and... It's just, yeah, it just sings. This no pun great, intended, but it's yeah. A, it's a great arranged track. Yeah. I think the way everything kind of builds in this to the choruses and to the outro with, you know, Mike played more of a solo going live with this at the end of it, which I think was a good moment for him. And this is a track that 
just does come together on the album more than live. Maybe just because the drums are a bit more in your face with it than they can be when it's live because it's such a, a produced track in that respect. And it feels like that somebody's sitting behind the drums and playing this. Again, mm -hmm. it's, not a, it's not a huge, crazy drum part or anything, but you know, hearing that drum, I'm like, oh, that's Phil. You know, that is, you know, him. Of course, now we'll find out that actually Mike was playing the drums on this track or something. But While well, yeah. wearing a scuba mask and Tony was wearing Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Doing yeah. a little whodunit. But, but like the album is great. I would even prefer to watch the video than to hear this in concert because I thought the okay. video was very well done. You know, yeah. at the end, they kind of get into this weird pillow fight, it seems, because it was all feathers flying <laughs> all over the place. But it, it definitely it harkens to... Globe. It was oh, a it's snow globe. globe. That's a different video you were watching. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, no, I have to say I agree with, uh, with Stacey that Phil singing, it's quite yeah. amazing. The drum part of it, uh, it's, it's, it's quite great. And, but I'm not sure I would choose, this, uh, choose it as an opener. I would consider also, I think Tom, you said, uh, on the shoreline. Right. Uh, but this song has a lot of personality, very particular sounds in the beginning with the clock and the, you know this fantasy sound. <laughs> but it was strange that it was the lead single too, you know, and and that it wasn't something like I can't dance or something a bit. Not that I can't dance is an up number, but it's not about child abuse. So it's it's a little different. But this was again, you know, the late '80s, early '90s, where there was a bit more socially conscious lyrics coming out even from Phil previously with um, uh, Another Day in Paradise, things along those lines, it was a bit more in that wheelhouse of lyrics about saying, here's an area that I want to talk about. Right, and it, I think, to me it makes sense as a single because yeah. of the format. It's sure. the verse, chorus, verse, chorus format. Okay. There's no you know, few minute, uh, there's no Tony Banks keyboard solo or, you know, a lot of big instrumental part, which is not radio friendly, particularly in 1991. Right. So. Yeah, this to me was a natural single. Right. All right. We're going to move on now to the second track, Jesus He Knows Me. probably bring up at this point that by the end of this podcast we would like to raise 18 million dollars <laughs> yes. so please put your hands on your speakers and heal heal <laughs> i this song it it kind of changed for me over time when it first came out it was 1991 mm -hmm. and the subject matter obviously about tv evangelists and you know being shysters and bilking people out of money it was a little outdated for the time because the whole Jimmy Swagger, Tammy Faye Baker, Jim Baker, that had happened a couple years before. Right. So when this Mid came to out, late 80s, yeah. Yeah, we were like, 
this would have been a great song like four years ago <laughs> and would have been very timely. But over the course of the last 25 years, it actually is a timeless song. Like, Because right. I listen to it now and you have so many other people who are out there doing the same thing that it, it, the song never gets old because there'll always be someone who fits this song perfectly. The, the, the culture of that has never gone away. And so this is still very rele- relevant in a way that you know other issue songs might not be. It's funny you say that because to me I wasn't sure what they were. T- I mean, yeah, you hear the lyrics and you know it's this you know preacher or whatever that steals money from people without them knowing it. But in 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 my culture, I wasn't familiar with this sort of people. Welcome like, to America. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to America. Well, <laughs> well, and that's and I live when they would do this on the We Can't Dance tour. Especially in in the European shows, Phil would kind of give the little tutorial ahead of time. His story about this song was over in America, these people exist. And, you know, this is what, you know, this song is about, about them taking advantage of people, you know, taking money and everything. In the U.S., he told the same story, but I think with more of a, this is your guy's issue. So, you know, welcome to it. The fact that it's kind of come full circle, like Jim Baker is still on late night TV hawking some end of the world food vat that you can buy <laughs> and people will send him money. Like other people who are debunked in the seventies and eighties, they're back on TV. Yeah. So it never kind of ends. And so I'm like before where I thought the song was, eh, it's kind of old school for this album. It's, it is timeless. And I think some of the lines are great and just doesn't focus. It just doesn't pertain to preachers who are trying to, you know, get money out of people, but also politicians. There's a great line, my favorite line in the song, just do as I say, don't do as I do. And you hear that in politics, and people were saying, oh, well, you shouldn't act this way. And next thing you know, two days later, they're caught in some scandal. Well, I thought you were actually going to say, I believe in the family with my ever-loving wife beside me, but she don't know about my girlfriend or the man I met last night. (laughs) I'm with politics, so that's... uh... Because even when he says that in the video, it's in a men's bathroom, he's caught with somebody else, and how (laughs) many people have been caught in men's bathrooms? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's that's one of those things that it's generalizable to a lot of things. And talking about the music itself, one of the reasons why I love this track on the album is that it moves forward it is a this is an up-tempo track in an album of a lot of kind of middle mid-range tempo songs and that's actually something i think this album needed a bit more of is is a bit more pace to it and this song was great with that i love the middle eight kind of almost the reggae-ish feel to it you know genesis reggae like the dodo and things like that which is not like reggae at all but you know it's that genesis reggae of, of their style with that and live, this was fantastic with uh, Daryl putting in a really kind of really fitting guitar solo for this track at the end of it. So, and with Phil going off like a preacher. This was in the list of the tracks for me that did work in concert. Yeah. It worked very well. Getting people, you know, on the screen, you see the numbers going up of how much money they're raising at the yes. end. Phil's on his knees with the halo on the screen behind yes. him. I, I thought it was a good crowd crowd song for, yeah. for that tour. I really like this song. And, and, I totally agree with you, Mike. And, you know, the, the pace of it, it moves forward. It's, it's upbeat, which again, um, you know, really gives, uh, the album, you know, a good kick. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good follow up to no son of mine. Um, but I do feel it's like anything she does part like 2.0, okay, the, maybe it's the writing symbol or sure, sure. just the, the tempo, but it feels, this is where I feel like they're repeating themselves a little bit. Oh, okay. Um, from the previous album. So they're trying to maybe recapture that magic of invisible touch on this track. 
Um, but that's not to say I, I think the the video is really great. The, lyr the lyrics, the music, they all they all come together really well. And I like hearing Phil get a little cynical and oh, a little yeah. angry yeah. Um, in his lyrics. Uh, this is good. There's one thing I will say about this album is it does not stint on the lyrics. The the lyrics mm -hmm. are actually very very good. Probably one of the strongest uh, 80s Genesis albums, yeah. but lyrically speaking. Yeah. And Phil actually wrote more lyrics than normal for this album, too. Uh, I mean, you go through the tracks that he wrote things for. It's it's No Son of Mine, Jesus He Knows Me, Driving the Last Spike, I Can't Dance. So the first four tracks are all his lyrics. Then we jump. Then I think he did Since I Lost You. And I think the rest are between Mike and Tony at that point. There might be, uh, Hold On My Heart might be Phil also. I can't remember. But somebody will find that, that out for us but them's but good words yeah there are there's a and and the lyrics that mike and tony contributed in general are really really fitting for this album also i think this is this is one of those tracks that initially it was rumored that it might be part of the 2007 set list which i was kind of like eh, i don't know if i need to hear that but now looking back on it and kind of thinking of what tom said you know maybe i would have liked this more than um no son of mine in 2007 but you know, I, I see that point of view with this. So we'll move on now to working on the railroad with driving the last spike. Leaving my family behind me, not knowing what lay ahead. Waving goodbye as I left them in tears, remembering all we'd said. I look to the sky.
this is the track that I always think of as being the second track on the album. I always kind of forget that Jesus He Knows Me is, is the first, the second track. So when this comes on, when we were listening to it yesterday, I do get a little bit surprised when Jesus He Knows Me starts. So I love this track. I think that as a story song, again, it's one of Phil's best lyrics as a story. Uh, and when you learn that it's about the, the railway workers in England in the 1800s, it gives kind of that, that reality to it. And actually, I, you listeners may not know this, but I bore everybody with this. I do genealogy as a hobby. And one of my great, great, great grandfathers was a railway worker on the Great British Wa- R- Railway in the 1800s. And so, I say that when you're sober. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I am. He did. He did try. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so when I learned that, you know, it's more about, oh, I feel a connection to this song because it, I feel it puts somebody's real life experiences that I can't have experienced into a perspective that I can get a, get a window into that world. It's, uh, and it's, it has one of the, one of the best hooks on the album, which is the, can you hear me? Yes. Can oh, that is just like, wow, that really, really knocks me for six again, sort of like, because I had to come back to this album to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to really fully appreciate it. And, you know, as is often so many things when you sort of like overdosed on one thing for many, many years, you have to give it a bit of time to come back. This track really hit home for me. I thought this is as good as anything that they've done during the eighties. Yeah. I think it's a great long track. Is that the one where they go, "Can you hear me? Can you hear me calling?" <laughs> oh, wait, that's Mike and the Mechanics. No. No. <laughs> I see what you did there. I see. Well, my my thing about that that hook, that lyrical hook, is that reading the story, I think that's supposed to be somebody who's basically trapped in a in a in a blasting accident. I wonder if that's like in, in improvising and coming up with the musical ideas for the song. I wonder if when they got to that mechanical railway sounding that kind of put a light bulb in Phil's head going, right. okay, that kind of sounds like you're on the railway and I'm reading this book. I think it was what railway navies or something. Right. Navies. Navies. Yeah. And he kind of put two and two together. It's like, Oh, let me write the lyrics to the song because right. I have something which actually does fit it perfectly. Yeah. I mean, from the build up. He's leaving home. He's kind of, and then all of a sudden, he gets very chaotic. The the mind at the very end, it goes pretty fast. And I think that this was one of those tracks that I think uh, they've talked about on the No Admittance documentary. That you know, Tony was going to write the lyrics for this one, but Phil said, "Oh, let me have a go at this." You know, because Phil usually didn't do the longer tracks like this. So I think it was part of him stretching his own writing out to kind of tell a story this way. I was going to say this. One of the other things that I think is is very. Uh, interesting about this album it just goes to show exactly how um democratized the ba- the band had become during the 80s where right. when you think about the uh, the arguments you used to have during the 70s and that territoriality that, right. that they all used to experience the very fact that phil could go can i have a go to which the rest of the guys would give it a shot right. you know and i think that's you know that's one of the I think the best things that came out of, of the 80s genesis was that democratization that the whole ability that everybody said well if you think you've got something we'll let you run with it right that's why we love this band <laughs> i know after hearing phil's lyrics on this i was like why couldn't he write more of the longer song lyrics he's so good at it i mean for me this track is probably the best marriage of music and lyrics that they've ever done particularly with this lineup. It might mm-hmm. be overall. I really like it just works beautifully together. What mm-hmm. he's what he's singing and emoting and what the music's doing, it's just they're so in mm-hmm. sync. 
Um, and it's one of my favorite tracks. It probably is my favorite track on, on this album. It worked live when I saw it back in 92. Again, you know, you think like, oh, is this going to be a little bit too too much of a long, slow buildup live? But it, for me, it worked. It worked really well. And I It's think, a very organic build, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It, it feels natural to it. Kind of the drums start coming in early during one of the verses. And, you know, as it goes into that first chorus, you can see this going somewhere. And it really kind of puts the story forefront with that. And they had great visuals of some of the old kind of cons- railway construction during this too going on. So you got, you got it wasn't a Tony lesson, but it was a Phil lesson a in Phil, this one. Yes. <laughs> uh, more historical in nature with this. So uh, I, I, and I think I haven't even talked about the second half of the track yet, where it really does build into this almost separate song. And it was released as a single, just uh, or at least to radio. The second half of this was a separate radio track that was released. So I remember hearing it once or twice, not often. And the Boston rock stations played that second half as, you know, the new single from Genesis. So, or the radio single, however they describe, however they describe these things. Well, I probably would have had the same outlook on that single as you do as Tonight, 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 as Stacy does for yeah. the Tonight, Tonight, Tonight. Because... Yeah. This needs to be yes. that full length, and I love the fact that they don't say the title of the song to almost eight minutes into right. the song. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, "Don't Stop Believing" with Journey. You don't hear "Don't Stop Believing" until almost the song is over. Okay. Whereas this, they have they save "Driving the Last Bike" to one of the last verses, and I think it just kicks home with that that tra- that work and that, that hard career of building the railroad tracks. And finally, he's like driving the last bike. It's, it really hits home. I think that this could have replaced like Home by the Sea or Domino in 2007 in the live set, you know, if they were looking mm. to. I know, I, was, I knew I was going to get a reaction to that. So. I know, I said, I said one or the other. Say your you know? favorite song, but. So. Mm. Yeah. For me, I actually would put this, you know, I said half worked in concert, half didn't. I would put this in the one that for me didn't work in concert. Really? Because he starts off, you know, you've you've already had probably about a half hour of music before this is played live i think and the intro at least in 1991 to american audience next up we have a song about the building of the british railways (laughs) it's like it doesn't really excite everybody and i can picture everyone just beelining it to the to those concession stands in the bathroom (laughs) well this is close to like british culture and history if you will mythology and history loom large in their legend in a lot of ways um especially history to the latter part of that. Right. It was the mythology earlier on, then it moved into re- reality. Yeah. So. And I, I think both of those um, subject matters have gravitas. You know, they have great weight behind them. And, uh, and I think that's the kind of thing that, you know, especially for Phil, with, with, his, with his love of a lot of historical um, stories um, and that kind of... I suppose you could say that this is a British frontiersman type thing where, where you've got that you know, building the railway, right. you know, um, and, uh, you know, that obviously captures the imagination of, right. of, of Phil and the rest of the band. And there's the the obvious, again, for American audiences, there's the obvious parallels to the building of the railway here in the U.S. also, the, inter- the transcontinental railroad in the 1860s after the Civil War. And so, again, I feel like now I'm turning into a history professor, but... If, if you don't get the British aspect of it, you can still, it's still generalizable to 
an idea of somebody going away from home to work. Great Endeavor, yeah. basically. Yeah, exactly. A story about Great Endeavor. Right. Much yeah. like Don't Give Up by Peter Gabriel, again, which is maybe a bit more specifically personal in the telling of that story. This is still a bit more general, but I think it's a, it's a similar feel to me in these tracks. I'm sure that's what everyone in Stadiums 92 were thinking. Oh, that's just like the, tra- <laughs> that's just like the Transcontinental Railroad in the yeah. 1860s. Well, I love this. It's not my fault if they're not thinking that, Tom. <laughs> I think that this, this has a fantastic line in it that I think applies to Genesis also. They'll never see the lights of us again. Oh, well, he's spoiled it. Yes. No, I think, like as everybody else said, the the, the, the sync in music and lyrics is, is amazing, and you know it's perfect. I would say it's one of my favorite tracks ever of the all eras. Was it was it largely sort of like the music that that really drew you in, or or was it a case of you heard it a couple of times and maybe suddenly you got what it was about? Yeah, exactly. The first time I was like, oh, this is a long song. You know, there's no instrumental in the middle, and you know, I. Music and the lyrics—it's just a, that perfect combination in this in this track. And you know, it took me a while to get into it, and that applies to any song. You know, I, I first maybe I don't pay much attention to what it's being said. But you're listening to it as a whole, really, because you're not worried about the meaning of the words necessarily. Right. I would think. All right, we will move on now to uh, the almost namesake of the album, "I Can't Dance." <laughs> this track i'm going to defend this because i know that some people don't like it i think this is fun i think this is like and i know what i like track i think this is like counting out time i think this is like quite this could be this this album's how the, the barrel, barrel exactly yeah. if no, i want wait. to <laughs> i i take it i i disagree all right so i think this is another whodunit all right in Which that, I like. <laughs> I know. Well, that's that's why it didn't surprise me right. that you, you you know that you do like this track. Okay. I think it's one of these. Whenever I hear the song, I always think, 
I wonder, like, if I could poll all the Genesis fans in the world, which track would they hate more? <laughs> Who Done It or I Can't Dance? Because I feel like those are the two songs that I think if any Genesis fan could, like, wipe off the face uh, of their catalog, they would <laughs> choose to Well, that's to strange wipe because off. I do think that this song is synonymous with this album it's that it, if i hear this out if i hear this track i'm thinking of we can't dance yeah. as a as an album i'm thinking of a very specific period of genesis's career i if i had one criticism i would say that you've just reached the end of driving the last spike you're feeling that sense of of, of epicness yeah. and then all of a sudden Dee, 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 dee. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, it's yeah. again maybe not the best placement on the album yeah. it's a so. bit of a glib track to come after that that, i mean you know the other side of the coin of what i was saying in terms of fans maybe you know oh you know not liking these tracks it's also to your point simon you just saying like it is the most unique and it does represent um another direction in their sound so when you think about abacab and whodunit on there was a weird quirky song it was like a concentration of what all what they were trying to do in Abacab as a whole. Where I when I hear I can't dance, it's like a concentration of the most unique part of what they were trying to do in 1990, 1991. And you know, I'm not. This is not one of my favorite tracks <laughs> by a long shot. Um, but it is absolutely the most unique. And you think about all the music you ever heard in your life. Have you heard anything like this? Maybe there's a reason for that, but um, you know, because it, it, once you do it, any any retread of it is I just mean, like I said, it's not my favorite, but yeah. at least this is the biggest stretch for them right, right. in this entire album, in my opinion. Okay. So for that alone, I give it props. It also uh, exhibits one of the things which many bands have, but often fail to uh, to put through on their album, which is a sense of humor. Yes, yes, yeah, I agree. I think Genesis was good about that. I mean, for, we talked about. Harold the Barrel, you know, nursery crime had that sense of humor to it. You know, there was always a slice of humor that was sometimes easily forgotten about. Uh, you know, The Lady Lies, you know, in 1978 and 80, you know, was a fun track to do live because there was a lot of fun interaction with that. It wasn't a funny song, but it was, you know, something that people enjoyed with that. The I, I get where the guys were going with this, and I get the fun that they were trying to have with this and poking fun of themselves because at the time the music was all about dance music, you know, at CNC music factory where, you know, everyone had to dance it out and they were taking a little poke at themselves that like, we can't dance. Yeah. I can't dance. Uh, but I just, I just can't get on board with this track. I've tried. I think the boing in the beginning that that doesn't work for it. I think the song for me would just be a lot better. Even if just that sound wasn't there. Cause I like the kind of the hard bluesy yeah. feel of it. But it just, it's one that I always skip over. It's one in concert that I would always use as an excuse to go to the men's room. And even though I think it did work well as, as a concert song because you've got the walk and you know the audience sings along, it just wasn't for me. And it was a, even to the point where, as Stacey was saying, that if you polled Genesis fans, yeah. a lot of them would probably rank it up there as their least favorite song. And then when Mike and the Mechanics toured, even on the poster it says, featuring Genesis hits like I Can't Dance. I'm like... That's not a selling point. <laughs> I mean, the, pe- the people who would go see a Mike and the Mechanic show are diehard Genesis fans who aren't looking to see I Can't Dance Look, play. Follow you follow me. I don't know. So that was, yeah. I, I always felt like a, kind of a little bit of a disconnect between the band and what they wanted to play and what they knew the fans wanted to hear. Because uh, I think no one, 
really wanted to hear that song. <laughs> yeah, I think it was inspired in a Levi's commercial, or it was a mock of two, you know, yeah, <laughs> that sort of culture. That, yeah. It was yeah. um, there was a Levi's commercial during the early nineties, uh, um, which had uh, heard it on the grapevine, oh, and okay. it was a, a very similar thing in the pool hall. And the guy is playing a guy at the pool, and he loses. But of course, he's a good-looking lad with a, with a six-pack and everything, and he loses <laughs> his trousers and all that. So it is a kind of mockery of those oh, yeah. that consumerism meets, you know, using rock and roll to sell their product. Right. I'm glad you said that because I never saw that commercial here. I don't know if you guys here, like in the U.S., we never saw that. Not so that I hear I these lyrics. That. I'm like, is Phil high? Like, what is? <laughs> I mean, is he just making up words that kind of sound like? <laughs> but this is, but it's that genre of you know yeah. that commercials. Like, but I, I'm I guess glad that it's it's rooted in something that really happens. That you know kind of makes a bit more sense. Okay. It also for me, I mean, I really do like the video. And to be honest with you, yeah, this song is, is worth it alone just to see Tony Banks walking behind the other two guys <laughs> i love that tony i that's just one of my favorite bits of that entire video right. because yeah, do I have to do this? Well, it's, for me it's just that whole business of sort of like you know tony banks doesn't like flying yet he gets on a plane right. tony banks probably didn't want to do that yet he took it for the team you yeah. know and i love that <laughs> and it's fantastic yeah. he's building up cred for something yeah you know, that's like a face of them yes facing and again I, I, genu- I genuinely think sort of like it does speak to the sense of humor in that yeah. band and I think yeah. that lyrically you know again you know I might be the stretching this but you know the only thing about me is the way I walk you know there's the the line and I know what I like you know with I, the way I walk in there also there there are certain echoes in a couple lyrical spots in this album that the fans could say oh that's a connection to this to this older track it might not have been intentional, but I think it's still something that is there to hang your hat on if you choose it to, if you choose to. I think if Tony really wanted to join the other guys and, and go, go full Monty, he should have, when they did this in concert, switched to a keytar and then joined them <laughs> yes. walking across the stage. But no, he stayed behind he the keyboard. spontaneously combusted. <laughs> Ellie looks offended by that suggestion. <laughs> in the 2007 tour to... To have this song played and then followed by Carpet Crawlers, it, it just it put a microscope on how different the band had been between. It just didn't. The glory of Genesis. That's what I say, you know, that it is. It, it is many different bands across the, the, the time of its history. I liked also in this track the, the different live lyrics that were sung at certain point. I, you know, she's got a body under that shirt, but all she wants to rub is my face in the dirt is the live lyric, whereas, you know, on the album, all she wants to do is rub my face in the dirt. A little cleaner, you know, a little less risque, but much like the um, line Invisible Touch live, that she will fuck up your life, you know, I I enjoy the live lyric better. Well, also, you've got to remember the context in which is, uh, the time in which it was released as well. This was the height of grunge. It was the height, it was the, it was the, the downfall of pop and the resurgence yeah. of rock music with heavy guitars and, yeah. and the street attitude. And I think, I'm not saying that it was something which uh, was, was particularly pertinent to Genesis's music, but they were they were in that age and I don't think they, they particularly uh, um, were uh, you know immune from moving okay. with the times, if you know what I mean, well, I and living there in that moment. Yeah. I think it's why this album didn't get higher on the charts in the US than it did. I mean, there were... This was a hit single for this, but it didn't go number one. I think that 
you know, when when they talk about that by the time Calling All Stations came out, that radio had really changed. This was the start of that change. It had started maybe a couple of years before this in the late 80s, early 90s, but it didn't really affect them this at this stage. I think when, you know, Dance of the Light came out in 95, 96, whenever that was, you know, that was something that Phil saw that, oh, you know, things on the radio aren't getting the way that they used to, you know. So this was the start of that for that. So, yeah, I think things were changing at that point. Whenever I hear someone say, oh, I love I Can't Dance, it's like when my daughter says, oh, I love Jar Jar Binks. I'm like, no, you're wrong. You're supposed to hate Jar Jar Binks. You're supposed to not like this song. But oh, well, it's an uphill battle. Yes, exactly. So maybe it'll change one day. So maybe you'll love Jar Jar Binks, too. (laughs) Misa, no, think so. (laughs) That's a whole different podcast. We now have time to move on to Never a Time. Speaking to what you were talking about regarding um, Jesus, He Knows Me being the anything she does, Hmm. this is definitely, for me, sounds incredibly reminiscent of throwing it all away. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't don't need this song on the album. It's one of the, it's for me, if I were going to drop something, it would be this one. And I think it's kind of ironic that it was, you know, nicknamed in their, in their writing process, BB hit, big, big hit, because they all thought it was going to be one of the big tracks of the album. And as Phil says, sometimes things let you down in the mix or they're not quite what they, what you think it's going to be. And it was released as a single. And I think it's, it's again, it's not one of those ones that it's not a bad song. It just kind of goes along and then it stops. And I'm like, all right, that's fine. I have two words here in my notes. Nothing special. (laughs) (laughs) See, and and I have three words, mid-tempo fat. Needs to be cut. See, I, I one of the things yeah. I thought is that this might actually be better if it was more of an up-tempo song, if it was kind of changed around, rearranged and everything. Like, that's one of those things that if, if it could be a little bit faster, keep it going a little bit more, it might be better. Because I don't think the lyrics are bad. I don't think it's, again, I don't think it's a bad song. I just think it doesn't work. I do. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I don't know what it is about. It's about that it's never a time to change anything. There's relationship. It's a relationship song. So. I, yeah, and Phil's vocals are so irritating on this track for me. Yeah, it's like he's whining. and Yeah, and I, I just, I can't listen to it. It just bounces right off me. This comes around to something which, uh, uh, it brings me uh, back to one of the questions that you asked Steve Hackett mm-hmm. uh, during the interview that you had, which is, those songs which you thought would be great with a crowd and missed and those songs which you really didn't give a huge amount of time for but seemed to resonate. And I, 
I suspect this is probably one of those, the ones where, yeah, they were all sitting in a room. And I've done it myself as a musician yeah. where we've all looked up and gone, that's a great track. Yeah. And for some reason, it just doesn't connect. Yeah. And it, it is an incredibly disappointing thing because you... They're like, you know, when you write a song, it's like your children. Yeah, you sort of yeah. like, you send it off out in the world with all of the things you possibly could give it to uh, to succeed. And, right. and you know, this one obviously didn't yeah. sort of succeed in the way that they imagined it would right. do. There, there are two things that would make the song good. One, have Paul Carrick sing it. And two, put it on a Mike and the Mechanics album. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, I can see that. It's one of those yeah. that when it comes up on this album, it's like, oh, I forgot this song was on the album. Like, because I know okay. the songs that I like on this record and then all of a sudden never time comes like oh yeah that was on there it goes by i'm like okay all right well with that we'll move on to dreaming while you sleep
I think this is a very cool track. I like the atmosphere of it. I think it's the title, though, is one of those titles that when you think about it too much, it doesn't really mean anything, but it's a cool phrase. And I think that it's, it's again, it's interesting telling a story. We were talking about before about telling the story about No Son of Mine and that the, the chorus is No Son of Mine. You're, it's this angry chorus. And this is a story about not that you're supposed to sympathize with the narrator of the song, but that he's the one who caused this accident that caused this girl to be in a coma and he's the lead character of it. So you're trying to identify with his guilt, but it's also that he's the bad guy in the track, in the song. So it's, it's an interesting song in that respect. You say, yeah, there's two sides to every story. And right. I, I, that's what I like about it. You know, it's a unseemingly, it's an unseeming hero, I guess, or, mm. you know, a good guy. Everybody has a good and bad in them. Yeah. And he's like, he's, a bad guy because he didn't claim responsibility for it. Right. But he's also trying to empathize with this woman's experience. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's just a very interesting subject for a song, I think. And, and at the end of it, although again, I like the song, I don't quite know how I feel about it. So yet another dark track on this album. Yeah. It's, it's a little depressing. Yeah. Stacy and I were listening to it yesterday and she mentioned the fact that it's got almost a Gabriel-esque vibe. Yeah. about it with those like, like marimbas right. types mm -hmm. of sitting in and the, the background. distant vocal of Phil like Rah! Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, I mean the core, I love the chorus. This is one of my favorite choruses in the in the entire album. It's very powerful. Yeah. Which brings back the Phil trademark all my life. All oh, my life. yes. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, this whole album, most of the choruses are those big walls of sound. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with um uh, Jesus, he knows me. Where it's like anything she does, two point oh. Right. They they've really like this is their formula for the for the album. And I think in you know especially in the um, Visible Touch, Mama album, and even Duke, they had a few of their songs on the album that had that verse, big wall sound chorus, verse, mm -hmm. big wall sound mm -hmm. chorus, some bridge instrumental, blah blah, like that formula. But yeah. this album, it's like ev almost every track. Yeah. And I think that again that combined with the the bloat of <laughs> mid-tempo songs um, just really it does kind of make it a little difficult to get through all the way sure. it gives it it's just out, it's right. not a, it, it's pretty even right yeah, yeah it's funny that that's a, this is a seven minute a little bit more over a seven minute song and it doesn't have any instrumental in the middle or at the end or there's just lyrics, I think. Right. What well, has a little atmospheric it's, part? It has the atmospheric sort of part, but it's not like fading lights yeah. with a big yeah. no. solo in it. It's it's just kind of a mood throughout this. And it's one of those where, yeah, it's it's a it's heavy subject matter, and, and it's in the category of those that I don't think work that well in concert because as it doesn't as it go really anywhere, like it kind of it has the build up throughout. So you have the chorus, then it goes back, and then it has the chorus. I do like the end, the way they ended it in concert, but as a concert song, I thought it could have just, they could have played something else in, in place of it. See, and I didn't see this in concert because they, at the Foxborough show that I was at, it was the last time they performed Mama on that tour because there was a keyboard issue and Phil's vocals might not have been, you know, the right range for that at that point. But I think after that, they replaced it with this track. So when this showed up on the live video, I was like, oh, 
I didn't see this. So. And I probably saw the show a week or so after you. Okay. So I was lucky to get this song, and, you got, and you got Mama. But Mama, <laughs> but we got Mama that wasn't quite good. So it wasn't like, oh, yay. It wasn't like, yay. It was like, oh, okay. That could that kind of got, they got through it. So it was, but it was Did rough. you guys see this, this tour, We Can Dance? Effectively, at this point, I'd ceased to be a fan of the band. I'd moved on to other things. But the bottom line here is that at the time, it wasn't really a place for me, and so I didn't, I didn't see them on tour. How about you? Yeah, what he said. Yeah, yeah same thing. I didn't see them live because I wasn't that interested in them mm. at that point. I didn't really connect with the album at the time. And I think I was still at an age, I was kind of too young to go to a concert by myself, and I didn't know anybody else who even knew Genesis was at that time. Um, so it wasn't like, oh, I knew these people were going and maybe I would just go with them. You know, it just, just didn't work out. Um, and like Simon, yeah, kicking myself a bit. I wish I could have gone to see them live as a show, but I'm going to be honest, we have the live DVD and (laughs) I was happier that my first live Genesis experience, um, was 2007. Obviously there are thousands of other shows that I think would have been <laughs> great to see for a first time as well but if I had to choose between the We Can't Dance tour and the 2007 reunion tour I'm glad I my first experience was the 2007 tour but well, I didn't thing. see them live in the We Can Dance tour because I was living in Argentina <laughs> <laughs> South America oh. having seen 92 and 2007 the 2007 was far superior set list even playing ability I thought they were great in 2007 one final point about Dreaming While You Sleep. It's funny because in 1997, when they were promoting Calling All Stations, the big, the two terms that they were really promoting, it's just darker and heavier. Right. And when you look at this album, you've already got a song about domestic abuse, right. people being killed on the British railways, right. someone hit and run, in a, ending in a coma, yeah. people who can't dance. So it's just like all tragedies. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it's pretty dark stuff. It's pretty dark yeah. stuff. So, with that... We'll move on to Miwok. Tempo, it's the return of the 12 string after many years of there not being a 12 string on the on Genesis albums. Uh, I was actually impressed on, the, again, the No Admittance documentary where it's, you know, Mike's playing his old, you know, double net 12 string on this, you know, from back in the Fox Are we Rock talking the, Sherlock, uh, the, the Shergold one or the Rickenbacker? It was kind of the greenish looking oh, one. Right, so yes. the Rickenbacker, yeah. 
So it was it was going back to that era. And again, it's not like a twelve string like like they do on Supper's Ready or Musical Box or things like that. It sounds almost like the the birds. Do you know I was thinking exactly yeah. that? There's a very Roger McGuinn. Yeah, kind it has of that kind of twangy it. type of twelve string, which is a way of not I haven't heard that type of twelve string on a Genesis album before. So I thought it was neat. I thought it was neat sounding with that. I like the track. I think it's it is a little bit much of, you know, verse chorus, verse chorus, you know, break verse chorus again. And I'm you know, that structure I was like, oh You yeah, certainly wouldn't lyrics. throw it off the album. Exactly, yes. I mean the lyrics are not are not poetry, but you know, and they are kind of repetitive here and there, but I I, just, I like the song, I, I can <laughs> say that. It's, to me, the commentary with the lyrics, it's almost like a Land of Confusion Part 2. And it's yeah. its a little less, you know, it, it maybe with the, the Birdsian 12-string in there, it makes it sound a bit more social commentary-ish than Land of Confusion was, but it, it works for me. I, I enjoyed this. I think it was something a little bit different. So it wouldn't be one that I, if I remember correctly from what I said at the beginning of the episode, I don't think I would drop this off the album, but I think that it would be... You know, I might rearrange it a little bit, but I, I like it. I would. I think I did put this in the list of songs that I would keep off the album. It, it, I feel like it's we've kind of been there before with the lyrical content. With as I said before, another day in paradise. This is kind of like we've we've been down that road. I, I do like the chorus, the the melody of the chorus. Yes. Uh, but other than that, it's another one of the songs that as I'm playing this album, I'm like oh, I forgot this song was on this album, and I'll listen to it, and then it's over and. Next time I listen to this album, you're like, oh, I forgot that song was on this album. <laughs> it's a constant rediscovery yes. for you. It's like it's a new like... song all over again. <laughs> right. Can I use this album, uh, just this moment in in, uh, in the podcast, just to speak to a slightly larger sure. theme, which is um, we were discussing yesterday as we were listening to this about where Genesis had found themselves at the end of the 90s. And really, they found themselves in a very similar position that they had found themselves in the middle of the 70s, mm-hmm. or I should say maybe during the late 70s, where they had kind of said musically all they were going to say in that particular style. Right. Um, and I think that they had done exactly the same during the 80s with, with Invisible Touch. They'd, they had reinvented themselves successfully, and com- when I say that successfully, some might say, m- might not necessarily say artistically, but certainly commercially, mm-hmm. and certainly from a an awareness point of view and I do get the feeling that there is um, uh, an argument to be said that they had reached the same period with We Can't Dance as they had kind of reached with and then there were three mm-hmm. which is they had done more or less this before Right. Um, some of these tracks had uh, I won't say a rehashes but they were revisiting themes they mm-hmm. were revisiting tunes and styles which they had done previously on the previous mm-hmm. album but it, it was like a uh, a, a case of uh, not diminishing returns but gentle refinement to right. the point where as I said during the 70s where you could see that they a change needed to be made right. for them to move forward it was definitely a plateau I think you know when when you reach kind of you know the stage you're at invisible touch like I think this maintained that commercially on that front but it didn't push it upwards it didn't I think drop it down any Really. I, I think agree, it was consistent yeah. with that. But I think that it's... Had Phil stuck around after this, it would be interesting when that whenever they would have gotten together again to be like, okay, what are we going to do this time? You know, and, you know, we saw what they did when it was just Mike and Tony, 
with calling all stations. Mm -hmm. And okay, if you add Phil into the mix with that, how would that have changed? What would they have written with him in there versus the two of them just working on their own? I don't know. It's hard to say, but I think you're right. I, I think I can see that as kind of that, you know, where would they have gone from here? I think of it yeah. as a Duke type of album too, where I think that they would have had to do something radically different if it was still the three of them. I think with the two of them, their radically different was get the new singer, get Ray Wilson in, and we'll do see what what happens with this thing. And whether they gave that time enough to work or not, I think is certainly up for debate. But that could have been the different, you know, alternate history at that stage. Yeah, I think if Phil stayed in the band for another album, you wouldn't get anything much different than this. Because you just listen to all their solo albums following We Can't Dance. Right. And they hadn't progressed themselves individually mm -hmm. as far as I think they needed to collectively to really mm -hmm. gut beyond the plateau they're at here, sure. I think. Um, and this song, just going back to Tell Me Why, this kind of speaks to that for me as a track um, on the album. It just bounces right off me. I hear it and it doesn't move me. Sure. I, I, I'm in, kind of indifferent about it. Sure. Um, you know, there's nothing that really like cries out like, oh, that's really interesting or right. different or or even, oh, that's a trademark Genesis thing that I always love. And so, you know, I'm connecting with it here. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just one of those things. Maybe one day it will like, you know, I'll have a moment and it'll Music be the best change. thing I ever heard. Right. And it does. It does change over time. But, you know, right now it's. Right. You know, it's something I like, Tom. I, I would probably skip, and I would, I would certainly, if I could trim this album, this would be one of the things I trim. Sure. All right, we'll move on now to Living Forever. That's what this reminds you of. That's what it reminds me of. It right. reminds me of Duke. Really? Yeah, Duke? it really does. It reminds me of that sort of like uh, man of our time sort of yeah. like chord progression yeah. sitting underneath uh, it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and of course, it's the very first moment on the album where there's a Tony Banks keyboard solo. <laughs> right. Exactly. So. Yeah, this sounds very eighties to me, more than nineties. That's an interesting way of looking mm. at it, actually. Yeah. But yeah, that this is this was one of those songs where. I did not like it until I listened to it again during this week, and really? I went, actually, I really do like this song. This is one for me that I, I liked from the get-go. I thought it was weird. I thought it had some personality to it. And it's, it's as Stacey has said, I think it's a Tony lesson here, that it's, you know, the idea of this, you know, you're always looking for that thing that will make it better. That, oh, I'll live forever, you know, it's... 
I think, and the reality is, you know, the cynical end of it is that, you know, it's all the same. And I think that I, this song connected with me and I like it. I actually, I like the keyboard solo at the end, but it does feel a little bit like, oh, and now we're going to have a keyboard solo at the end. Yes. But I, I, I like it. I think it's cool. But it's... We were in the car listening to this track and I, and I just said under my breath, I said, we're a long way from the 11th Earl of Mar, aren't we? <laughs> with regards to the kind of keyboard uh, yeah. solos that Tony Banks was keen to do. I don't mind the keyboard solo. Yeah. I mean, basically any chance to hear sort of yeah. Tony Banks stretches his uh, musical muscles is fine with me, really. Yeah. But it is a very, very different kind of solo from, from him. And I don't know whether or not there was pressure coming um, because you just know that these guys can play yeah. more intricately than they're actually doing here. Yeah. And in some ways that works because sometimes the level of technique that you, that you hold back informs what you do play. Right. And as a result, you can play with a lot more authority. But on the other side of it, it would be nice. And it, fortunately, it does happen on this album. Um, a little later on where they really do stretch themselves and this is the very first time um, that I feel since driving the last spike that the genesis that I know and love wakes up again hmm, sure I think for, to your point about the, the writing and the arrangement of things I do think that, that one of the, the negative side effects of creating everything from jamming and kind of playing together in the moment and not having kind of the pre- the going off in a room and writing a song type of thing is that it's it's a little bit more difficult to come up with those arrangements when it's yeah. based out of jamming and you, not that you can only go so far with it but you'd have to work on it so much harder i think to get that more intricate level of playing on top of that improvisational writing and again, it, yeah. it, we're talking about you know they spent the vast majority of the eighties and the nineties working with drum machines yeah. and drum machines certainly back then, by their very nature, were very repetitive. Right. Uh, and while they can give you a structure by which you can jam around it, mm -hmm. the idea of tempo changes, the idea of speeding up and yeah. slowing down, mm -hmm. sudden stops, yeah. light and shade, they tend to be, I won't say annexed, but, but certainly lessened. The, 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 you get a sense of the dynamic uh, between these songs. As Stacey was saying earlier, these are all... This is an album of big choruses. Yes. And, uh, and I think that uh, if there was one dynamic that probably remained from, from the, uh, from, you know, that, that has remained throughout their entire mm -hmm. career has been that, that epic chorus. Yeah. And I suppose it, it has survived. But this song, it excites me. It's sort of yeah. like I go, I, I, don't, I love the chord sequence. I love the backing vocals. Yes. It's one thing that I will say for, the, for this album the backing vocals on it are probably some of the best that I've heard mm -hmm. um, it was something which Phil was very good at double tracking himself was he the only guy to do you the backing know, I, my, my thing I agree everything about the backing vocals I just wish that the other guys had done it along with him just to give it a little bit of a different flavor to the backing vocals too but yeah I think on this album and I think on Invisible Touch also it was really only him doing the back like all the arrangement of the backing vocals all the singing of them and to your um I love the backing vocals as well. And when I listened to this album again this week, it reminded me of like a Bare Naked Lady song. And I could oh, okay. totally hear Stephen Page and Ed Robertson <laughs> doing a dual vocal yeah. to this track. And yeah. you know, especially, you know, early nineties Bare Naked Ladies too. It reminded me of something off of like Gordon or maybe um, uh, Born on a Pirate Ship. 
okay. could have totally been on that. So I really do like the songs. I'm a huge Bare Naked Ladies fan. Um, so yeah, this is this is a song I keep. Ah, there you go. <laughs> and this came very close to being played on the tour. Also, really? it was yeah. it was there's a very brief video of some news thing from down in um, Texas that they show a little clip of them playing this, rehearsing mm. it. And I, it just, it's one of those tracks that at the last minute they said, oh, it's not going to make the cut. And I was like, oh, you know, that, I think it would have been really cool live. So, I've, I've always loved this track. It was the second track I heard off this album because it was the B-side of the <laughs> single. single. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember after we played it, we, uh, my friend Rob and I, after we played it the first time, No Son of Mine ended, then Living Friend Living Forever ended, and it had, of course, that, like, harken back to old Genesis. It got the first half mm-hmm. regular song, and the second half instrumental, like Inside Out or sure. Ripple, uh, Entangled or uh, songs mm-hmm. like that. And I was like, I actually like that song better than the single No Son of Mine. So I was hoping it would probably be played on tour, but it, it wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. The lyrics, at, it's another song that kind of reminds me of the lyrics to uh, Jesus, He Knows Me, whereas at the time they might have seemed dated, but they're actually timeless because if you look at all the articles that come out today, mm-hmm. drinking coffee is bad for you. Drinking coffee is good for you. <laughs> yeah. Have a glass of wine each night and you don't have to work out or no, right. don't drink. So it's like all these confusing things about, well, what am I supposed to do to live forever? Like, uh, So this just definitely speaks to like the contemporary new health news of the day. As I drink a beer, as I'm saying this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you will let out live forever. <laughs> we'll now move on to... Hold on my heart. Must we? just talking about this a little bit offline like i i don't dislike this song i think it's fine for i do (laughs) simon simon described it as 
uh, not a very good song. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it's for me. This is one that, like, I get why it's why it's on the album. I get why they like it. You know, I get why Genesis said, "Oh, you know, we we enjoy this because I think that it's to come up with a ballad like this takes work. It, it Genesis and Phil Collins make it look easy, and it's not. But I think then it's just a matter of taste. And, you know, for me, this is the type of song that doesn't really do much for me personally. And it's kind of grown on me, I think. And I think the thing that kind of hooks me in and why I would keep it on the album Mm -hmm. is that I think it's just a it's just Tony's chords, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what it really comes down to. I think on so many things, Genesis, I really like his chords on this. I don't care for the lyrics. Mm. it is it's a slower song, and again, among all the mid-tempo, you know, slower um, tunes on here, it feels exceptionally slow. Mm-hmm. Um, I again, all I can say is I, I like the chords. Now I have to caveat that as I remember when Tom and I went to uh, <laughs> quite a few sh- uh, reunion shows in two thousand and seven. This was the one song we agreed like, all right, this is where we take our bathroom break. <laughs> in the set <laughs> like whether or not we had to go or not because it's something you can kind of skip over it's sure. like I, I'm not going to listen to it all the time it's not like oh I have to hear the song or what I get excited yeah. when I hear it but it comes on and it, and it you know it, it's nice it's yeah. fine let me tell you what I think uh, here we go <laughs> if this was a set of Legos this would have been the gift from an aunt who didn't know me well and I felt duty bound to build it and when I got it built at the end, it was exactly as disappointing as I thought it was going to be, as it did look on the outside of the box. It wasn't the spaceship, it was just the plane house. It was. Basically, this was the, the gas station with the one attendant and the small car. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is not a bad song, as Mike said. It, it's, it's, again, I don't like it too much. I mean, it, I would cut it out from the album because I don't think it sounds very much like Genesis is just a ballad, so. <laughs> I probably like it a little bit, surprisingly, the most at this table. Uh, as part of it is the chords. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I'd read an interview with Tony somewhere that says that he sometimes he tries to sneak in more chords and Mike or Phil would actually let him get in because they kind of want to keep it a little more simple, excuse me, a little more simple. But with this track, he was able to kind of sneak in a few more. And I think they work. It's got that melancholy feeling. Uh, I probably like it a little bit more when I might have been in and out of relationships and I could relate to the song more. Sure. Now I'll listen to it and I, I never skip it. I would be okay with it on the album as a concert song. I even thought it was okay <laughs> in 1992. In 2007, I, we watched it the first time just yeah. because we wanted yeah. to see everything. Yeah. And then every other time after that, it was the bathroom song. <laughs> but only the part of that was due to the timing of the song. It came after the 20 minute medley. Right. So you had to go to the bathroom. Oh, if yeah. there was one song you and picked. You had time for another beer at that point too. <laughs> but I think so. they were, they were intentional about placement of that song yeah. too. So that if, you know, if you were the fan who wanted to stick around for all 20 minutes, it's there for you, the break. And if not, if you're the fan that got sat through the 20 minutes of older songs going, what was all that? And it's like, oh, something I recognize now. Right, oh, right, so it's right. it kind of serves both purposes in that space. In so. that respect, all of the people that did like that, I am Skeletor and they are my victims. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think, but this is, again, you know, the, the glory of Genesis is that, you know, 
there's some not that there's something for everyone, but but I think that there's a lot of different things for people in this music. Yeah, that's true. And and I'll say, you know, I I didn't really like this song to me it initially was forgettable. You know, I didn't really think much of it until I think that I in maybe even after 2007 where I was like, "Oh, okay, is that that's a better ballad than I gave it credit for." And I think that's what the 2007 shows that I went to, I only went to two. Uh, gave me a bit more of a perspective on was that oh okay that's that's an okay song, and you know it gave gave me that perspective on it. And again, maybe I'm getting older, maybe I'm a little less edgy than I used to be, <laughs> uh, but who knows? I can all I can say though is this: is that I remember once I was in a relationship with a girl, mm-hmm. and I split up with that girl, and I uh, I belly ached to my my best friend about it, uh-huh. and uh, to, to use this song as a uh, as an analogy, basically. This song was me belly aching, one too many times. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. right. To which all of my friends said, "Yep, yeah, we've heard it now. Right. Shut up. Right, move <laughs> along." <laughs> Excellent. With that, anything else for this track? All right, we'll go on now to Way of the World. Drums, the first maybe two seconds of this song remind me of You Know and I Know by Phil. It's in No General World Require. Sure. Yeah. It has kind of that same drum sound. It's that barking yeah. drum yeah, sound. Barking, yeah, the barking, yeah. Alright. Slap. This isn't a bad song at all. No. This, is, this is one of those songs where, you know, when I came back to the album, didn't do anything for me, but 
listening to it this week, I like it. It's got a good lilt to it. It's 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 not a great song, but it's by no means a crap song at all. Right. It's a little unsettling, I think. Yeah. You know, the verses to me have that spookiness isn't the right word, but it's it's a little creepy, a little off in some ways. And Phil's vocal delivery is a little bit laid back, a little bit, you know, kind of, you know, his vocal delivery is is at not normal for him. And so it gives a little bit of a perspective on the lyrics that are, you know, off. And I think there's a lot of the the lyrics for me, it's almost told by the perspective of a cynic, you know, the chorus line, you know, mm-hmm. it's just the way of the world, it's how it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. It's not it's basically saying the reason all this crap happens is that you can't really do anything about it. Yeah. And I don't think that's what the song is trying to say. I think the song is taking that point of view of the cynical person and much like what tom said i keep going back to what you said about uh hold on my not hold on my heart about no son of mine is that again the the chorus of this is that it's just the way the world it's how it's meant to be it's meant to be shit and it's like (laughs) again not the best sing-along you know unless you're all kind of lemmings going off a cliff but i think it's it's it has that little turnaround that's like can you sing along to this and re- and think about what you're singing about. I mean, I think there is a um, a, a dystopian theme mm. running throughout the entire narrative of the album in a lot of ways. Which is, you know, a very interesting way of looking at this album, I think. A very different way that doesn't, you know, the album art doesn't feed into that. But it's it gives, there's a lot of, again, you know, Genesis is good about making sad things sound happy. I think I, I don't know whether or not you guys would agree with me, but um, when I was younger, it was always about the tune. It was always about the mm-hmm. song. The older I became, the more lyrics became important to me. The more that became a, a, as much a, a part of how the song was presented to me, the story behind it. Um, and uh, and I I don't know whether or not it is the same with you guys, but now the lyrics play a huge part yeah. of, of, of a when it comes to listening to a song. I need to know what that song's about, not necessarily for the artist, but for me, yeah. um, and what the message is. Yeah. What can I get behind this? You know, Can I think about this? I always wanted to know the lyrics. I didn't necessarily need to agree or disagree with them, but I wanted to kind of understand them mm-hmm. and know what they were going for. I like that the lyrics here kind of reference city lights going out one by one, which brings me back to me and Sarah Jane. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, those little connections that I was talking about before lyrically in this album. So, I think with, when paying, paying attention to lyrics, I kind of do the same thing like you do. Like I want to pay attention to lyrics to the point where I'll go back to songs that I loved in the early 80s, mid 80s, and listen to the lyrics. I'm like, that's what they were singing about? Like, oh, like, that. <laughs> <laughs> My anaconda don't want none? <laughs> And it, you do find, I find myself going back like, wow, you know, I didn't know that that's what they were saying because at the yeah. time I was so involved with, you know, rocking along to the beat and that was what hooked me was the musics. But it, when when you do go back and it's kind of like this song, the lyrics are pretty, pretty cynical. You know, Mother Nature, Mother Nature sits on the other side with a loaded gun. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I always took this was song was about really the, kind of like the environment and kind of like we're kind of taking it for granted and you know the city lights are going out one by one mother nature you know it's it's 
time is moving on if we don't take care of what we've got here does the red blue sky meet the red sky like we've got this blue sky we're not going to have it forever that's that i kind of took this more of an environmental song and that's an it. absolutely wonderful melodic hook as well will the blue sky meet the red sky yeah. that's a that's like wow that's great yeah. and i think for me the lyrics for this it's all about taking the easy solution you know if you take the tears from crying eyes will the hurt just disappear if you put a gun in the hand, if you put a weapon in the hands of a frightened man, will he show no fear? Oh, yeah. here's your solution. Now you're good. And so it's like throughout the lyrics, that's kind of what it's saying. And then the chorus is like the person who thinks that way. It's just the way of the world. Here, do this, and that'll fix you. So I, that's that's what I get out of this song. Every time um, I listen to it, and the more we talk about it, the more I'm I, I, I'm convincing myself that this is actually quite a smart song. Yeah, it's kind of like Tony's Land of Confusion. Yeah, sure, another Tony lesson. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I think it has a really kind of weird sounding keyboard solo in it. That's not really a solo. It's kind of it's definitely a keyboard lead that kind of. S- Almost like Stevie you know, Winwood kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, and kind of that like water glass, you know, sound to things that's hard to define what, how it is. And on that, we'll get, go on, make sure I got the right one here. Since I Lost You. This is one of those songs that you feel a little bit guilty about criticizing once you know the subject matter. I think when this first came out, it was like, oh, it's just another cheesy love song. He's lost his love. He's going away. I'm going to skip it. And then when you actually find out what it's about, you're like, oh, shit. (laughs) I feel horrible, like the worst person in the world. uh, Because it was written by Phil uh, for the death of Eric Clapton's son. Right. And so once you find that out, you're like, okay, maybe I'll revisit it for a little bit. Because um, um, I'd heard that um, Phil had actually approached Eric and said, am I okay to, yeah. to do this? I read that also or saw that in an interview, and, and Eric said, yeah, so it's it's fine. You know, I think it's it's difficult because it's, it's, a, it's a track that I will say I don't particularly like, but I do but I understand it. And actually on the No Admittance documentary, you hear a bit of it without any vocals to it. 
And I'm like, I actually like this without the vocal track on it. Like, I think the musically, it's almost this this Christmassy sound with, you know, the, the bells to it. Um, it reminds me of Afterglow in some weird way. Um, I had more of a sort of like it or not kind of yeah. little, but simply because of the, the big cavernous sound to the drums. Right. Yeah, it just, it has that feel to it. And I think, again, what I knew about the... I remember reading very early on about the Clapton connection with this and, you know, and, and was ambivalent. And I think liked, liked it earlier on because of that. And I understood it. Then I kind of, you know, was like, I don't know if I need to hear this over and over again. And kind of my, my appreciation for the song diminished. And now it's at that space where I, where I do think like, well, this is on the album for a reason. And it is different from a lot of the other tracks but I still don't. I still wouldn't go back to it very often. Yeah. To re- to reference something you said on our Face Value podcast, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned the fact that you have to start sometimes think about why right. the track is included, as right. as much of whether or not to to you know, as if you like it or not, there's a context to be had in yeah. it. And I I tend to agree with you. I I don't um, I don't feel that strongly about this song right. but knowing the context does give it a lot more power than I I, right. I would have previously given it given it credit for right. yeah I echo what both of you are saying you know it's I, I it is it really does stand out on the album um, in terms of sound yeah um, and you know the, what the song's about is mm-hmm. very serious and Phil gives it a lot of emotion which mm-hmm. it deserves and the he treats it very well, right. um, and it's a beautiful kind mm-hmm. of um, sentiment he's, right. he's putting across. But I, th- you know, I was thinking about it recently, and I think I would prefer this song much more if it was on an actual Phil Collins album. Mm-hmm. So Phil had the complete control over it because mm-hmm. I, I've come to realize over the years that I prefer the way Phil does a ballad over how Genesis does mm-hmm. a ballad. Sure. And I'm wondering if Phil had just done this on his own um, and treated it in his own way, right. um, if it would probably resonate with me more. Right. It would probably have a bit more gravitas on a Phil album, the way that he would done it. Maybe yeah. there would have been strings with it. And it would have probably brought up a little bit more emotion to you. Like, even knowing what it's about, I don't feel an emotional connection yeah. to it, yeah. where if it were a fill a solo song with a really big production and maybe not so as you say this sleigh bell is Christmassy like I could really and it'd be a sad song like I don't it should be a sad song and it's not a sad song mm-hmm. that's given the subject matter I feel like it's maybe because there's that disconnect that's why the song doesn't do anything for me and, and could be could have been left off the album and this is I think is uh, the this is this actually speaks to something else which is it's so easy to be cynical about stuff like this so, sure. so, like, and also any ballad because mm-hmm. really at the end of the day you write ballads because you're, you're sad right uh, you write ballads because there's some emotion there and I'm as guilty as the next person for going next <laughs> and just going yeah. and just missing the point I suppose right. is the best way to describe it right me too it's, it's something that I could possibly skip in the album but then knowing now that it's about Eric Clapton's song, uh, it makes me feel guilty. I'm like, oh, I need, I should revisit it and you know, pay more attention to the lyrics and you know, 
give it more importance yeah. because it's about something so delicate. This song is a great song which makes me feel like a bit of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think it's it's funny. I was thinking about it when listening to it yesterday that, you know, if I were to go through a very horrible loss of some type, this song might actually give me some solace. Yeah. Like, like it, I was yeah. almost like, you know, this is a... Something, you know, it sounds horrible, but kind of to have in my back pocket if I when I need it, and I think at this stage of my life I haven't needed it, but it might connect with me if I were to have a reason for it. I mean, in some ways, you know, hopefully I won't have a reason for well, it. Well, who who but, on earth wants to ever be in that position? Right, you know? right. And on that, I think we'll wrap up and move on to fading lights. So who wants to cry first about this song? Man alive, this is a good song. Yeah. And I will actually say, hand on heart, this is in my top three favourite Genesis songs of all time. Excellent. So it works for me on, on many levels. No, me too. I mean, it, it's Fading Lights, the last song of the last album with Phil Collins. Mm. Uh, I mean, they didn't know that at that time, obviously. But, but there's, a, there's a track by Rush called Losing It, which uh, speaks about um, the, the once... 
you know the heyday of someone's life the the potency that is now gone you know and the, right. of your younger life your longer mm-hmm. younger days i should say um and um and i think this is this also speaks to that but it's for me and i can only speak personally this is the last genesis track ever mm-hmm. recorded sure i i you know no disrespect to to ray or any of the stuff on on calling all stations but if they're going to go out on anything right this was the track. They closed the book for me. On... Calling All Stations was almost a coda in some ways. Yeah. You know, but, like an but, asterisk in the yeah, Genesis sure. history time. Like the first so. album. <laughs> and it, it really is that, that, that the sense of a, a pathos in the lyrics um, is only exceeded, in my opinion, by the way that song has been arranged, the way that they played mm-hmm. that tune. And it's also one of the tracks which um, features just the three of them live yes. on stage just like they did during the medley and during cinema was it yes. cinema show yeah. just the three of them and i love that nod to the past mm-hmm. and uh, the very fact that this this could have belonged on a 70s album sure. and i'm not saying that it's good because of that right. i'm just saying that for me everything that made the band mm-hmm. special everything that made them super awesome in my head and my heart yeah. It's kind of summed up in this track, you know. There's there's a great lyric. There's a fabulous chord sequence. There's an amazing arrangement in the middle. There's a brilliant keyboard solo <laughs> by Tony Banks, and then just the way it leaves you at the end. Mm-hmm. And you, just, yeah, I'm I'll be quite happy to say that my lip trembles when I hear this track. <laughs> As for me, you know, I I I love this track. I remember seeing it live in '92. And kind of realizing maybe about halfway through the keyboard solo, two different things that I was seeing kind of like this era cinema show. And also that because the last verse is just like the first verse, I was like, this might only be the three of them for this this entire 10 minute track. And I just thought that was a really neat thing that this band that always needed to one or two other guys in the band to kind of get the music put forward as a five-piece band didn't need it for this track. And I just thought that was, again, as a, as a last track, I think that's fitting also, that they could do this entirely on their own. Where was it in the live set, just out of interest in 93? Uh, about in the middle. Um, towards, I'd say in the first four, it was after the, the old medley. Um, and then they did a chunk of... Of the new album, like Jesus yeah, Knows Me, like, like it, but it was and before Fading that. Lights it was, was on there, yeah. it was, it was in the first half of things. So, uh, and actually, when it first started with the drum machine, I thought it was Man, Man on the Corner, because the drum machine again when it starts, I was like, oh, and then then Tony's keyboard starts, and I said, oh, this is Fading Lights from the album, and and I think that's. I liked it on the album, but then seeing it live, I was like, oh, this is this is cool. It's a great song live, and I had the same experience. I remember looking over to my friend and being, it's just the three of them. It's just yeah. the three of them up there. Right. So and it was that, like, I'm seeing what the three of them were like back in the day. Yeah. And in an era of tours where there's 85 people on stage at some of these shows. Yeah, that, and that was just the union tour, right? <laughs> exactly, yes, with the S and, uh, and other things, or... Or, you know, I mean, Pink Floyd had numerous extra musicians on stage, but to see a song that, especially in the middle, is this dense, that's done by three people, I think that's, again, the power trio aspect of it. 
uh, because there's no separate bass, Mike's able to do the bass pedals along with the guitar. And I think it, it, it worked, and that keyboard solo is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I'd put that right up there with, with anything that he did in the 70s. Yeah. And and also, I mean, one of my favourite keyboard solos from the 80s, which is the Second Home by the Sea solo yeah. as well. I mean, yeah. it it's just amazing. I mean, it, and again, I think, again, it, it, it harks back to what I was saying earlier, which was um, these guys always had these chops in their back mm -hmm. pockets and they just chose not to do them because they could serve the song better without mm -hmm. them. You know, in a lot of ways... So much of that 70s material is impenetrable to the vast majority of people who like the 80s mm -hmm. simply because there's so much playing. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a beautiful example of, of going, yeah, we're probably done, but <laughs> just before we go, yeah. we remember, we yeah. know, we can do this. Yeah. You, know, you never know exactly how insulated a band is from their, yeah. from their fans, their critics, from the outside. I get a sense that when I, I listen to this song, they were listening. Oh, sure. They damn well knew what they were capable of. And they went and did that 80s material anyway mm -hmm. because that's what they wanted to do. Right. And just before you think, okay, well, these guys have completely lost it, they throw this out on the floor and, and go, okay, well, how about this then? <laughs> well, it's... I don't want to bring the tabletop down, uh, but this song, obviously, it has many different um, meanings and interpretations it's the end of the band. It's, you know, they're saying goodbye. Um, all right, hold on for a second, sorry. It's okay. Sorry, guys. Okay, I'm ready. Um, but for this song, as, you know, we said, it came out in mid-November of 1991. A few weeks before that, my dad had passed suddenly uh, and it kind of came as a surprise to everyone and the thing that we looked forward to or that I look forward to is that like this album was coming out it was going to be like a a breath of fresh air like some silver lining to all that was happening in my life at the time and so listening to this song now especially you know sometimes I listen to it and it's great and I strum along and you know it's great um, but sometimes when I'm like in a moment and hear those lyrics another time it might have been so different if only we could do it all again but now it's just another fading memory out of focus. So the outline still remains like in, and almost every chorus, there's a line which gets me thinking and really pulls me in. And it just kind of reiterates to me the fact that some people have some certain connections to songs that, well, you might not think about it, really resonate with them on some level. And uh, as I said, this, this one almost gets me every time just because of that connection. And uh, it was, it, it was such a funny fall of 91 because so much had happened. You know, my, my dad was October. This came out in mid-November. I remember a few weeks after this album came out, I was in the cafeteria. Of, I was my, it was my junior year of college. And some person at our table who had no right being the one to tell me this or tell us and be the one that I heard it from goes, oh, I heard that guy from Queen died. Oh. And I was just like, it felt like someone punched me in the stomach. Mm -hmm. It was just like all these things right in a row. It was just mm -hmm. like, 
So, you know, as I said, I loved hearing this album in concert, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to bring everybody down, but <laughs> there's just this connection to the song, which, as everyone said, oh, every trembly lip is like, yeah, I can definitely see myself in that. You know, listening to the car, I'm like, all right, next song, I'll, <laughs> or previous song. Right, so it's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, I'm going to hug you right now. <laughs> Coming up on the next Dr. Phil. <laughs> For those of us who identify with music, I think that there's... There are things that connect with us, whether it's because of times in our lives or things that you think about, things you think about, you know, the past, the future, whatever it might be. For me, the line that, that you know, kills me on, on all this is, you know, days of life that seems, seem so unimportant seem to matter and to count much later on. Like, that's the, you know, the reflecting back on things that connect in what, with what you were talking about also. It's, there's just... They're very smart lyrics, and but they also they don't make it feel sappy to me. Like right. songs like this can go into saccharine and you know, oh, isn't everything going to be okay? World very easily, and this is you know maybe because it's Tony writing the lyrics or whatever, but they're very straightforward in their observation and acknowledging that. Yeah, things change, things move on, but they still affect you. So. I mean, that's the big contrast I see between a song like Since I Lost You, mm-hmm. which does nothing for me. It evokes mm-hmm. no feelings. I'm like, oh, that's a silly song. Oops, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I know I always feel guilty mocking it. But if you pay attention, the acronym S-I-L-Y is only one letter away from silly anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it was such, such a difference between Since I Lost You and this song, where it's it's night and day of a song that is yeah. supposed to do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. I just wonder what it must have been like to have been in the room to have heard that chord sequence for the first time, and you could see the um, the wheels turning in everybody uh, everybody else's head. Go, yeah, right. yeah, we could do this. I've got to get to work. You yeah, know that exactly. kind of sort of stuff. The emotion of things. So, and Tony said about these lyrics is that you know he. I mean, they all kind of said that they thought Phil would leave after each album. Actually, as he got more and more popular, but he did feel that this might be the end of things. And so, if they were going to go out, this was the way to do this. And this was um, "We Can't Dance." The, the the time between "Invisible Touch" and "We Can't Dance." Correct me if I'm wrong. Was mm-hmm. the greatest gap between albums yeah. they've yeah. ever had in their career. Right. So I could kind of see the band thinking, well, if it took us this long to get here, what's right. the next one going to be? Is it going to snowball? And, mm-hmm. you know, they know what they're doing a couple of years out, right. you know, each yeah. of them. And, yeah, I think they all, it was like an understood, you you know, you, you, you round people long enough, you kind of read yeah. their minds. And I think it was an understood thing, like, you know, whether it was going to move on or not, this is a great place to just stop right. and reflect in their career. You right. know, they've gone through almost three decades together as a band, yeah. and you know that's the time you kind of look back. And what, yeah. are they in their late thirties, early forties at this they point? They've been like just in their hitting their early forties. Yeah, yeah, so that's your midlife review yeah, time sure. <laughs> for I everybody. Want to spend the rest of my life. Exactly. Yeah. Like what? Feeling their mortality. Exactly. Yeah. Like thinking, yeah. like okay, all right, I'm like halfway done here. Yeah. Let's 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 yeah. take a moment and, and reflect on that. Yeah. So. There's one other thing which I'd like to to make mention, and that was, Genesis were the very first band that gave me that feeling of chills up Mm. and down my spine genuinely you know chills up and down my spine and just when I thought they were absolutely incapable of delivering that to me again Mm. 
they pull this track out of the bag. And this gives me the kind of chills that I remember when I was in my teens and in my mm-hmm. 20s. And, uh, and it reminds me why I'm a Genesis fan. Right. I can only echo to what everybody else says. <laughs> you, Simon, in terms of it's a perfect combination of the lyrics, the music, the instrumental, a good way to sort of say goodbye. I mean, calling all stations would be another episode, but... <laughs> hmm, right. Let's wrap up the main album there and move on to the two bonus tracks that we have. We'll start off with, make sure I hit the name right, Hearts on Fire. first track that I listened to of the two bonus tracks here because it was the one honestly I was least familiar with because on the shoreline kind of overshadows it as as the bonus track that should be on the album and I can see why because Hearts on Fire seems unfinished to me like it's it's fast it's kind of has a nice drive to it which I was like oh would have been nice if this were on the album but it doesn't go anywhere or do anything for me it's not bad it's just like it needed more work and I could see why it got shunt into bonus bonus track work. yeah to me it sounds like an invisible touch hangover <laughs> you know it's like they woke up in the morning after making invisible touch or like oh and then they kind of regurgitated a little bit from that album i could see why it was so but you like but you, you like invisible touch I do, so that's I do, yeah but that's it, not, it didn't yeah. deserve to be on the invisible touch either oh, um, okay so. and it certainly yeah i could have done without it on on here as well um yeah, I have really nothing else to say about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, yeah. I thought the voice was a little illegal alien ish mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I actually like there's the part before the chorus where it's like, da, 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 and I'm like, oh, I like that kind of, you know, there's bits of this that I like that I think could have been expanded. But again, should have been a B side. It was a B side. Life is good. Here's a question <laughs> though. Um, over their career, do you think they've pretty much got it right with regards to which songs made it onto the album which songs should be b-sides because we're going to talk about another yeah. track in a second which i think a good proportion of people here yeah. believe should have been included it, did you think they got it right most in of the general, time yes i do yeah. i would only take you know there's two songs i think should have been on i know albums. one you might recall yeah you might recall <laughs> and, and on the shoreline which is a b-side of this album those yeah. are the only two i could think of I would say and maybe Happy the Man or yeah, Twilight Owl House. They're both good. <laughs> I would say On the Shoreline or maybe Feeding the Fire. Um, that to me, but I don't know what Feeding the Fire would replace. It might just be in addition to. Um, and even when we we'll, might as well jump into On the Shoreline now and just treat yeah. these as, as a group. Yeah. 
listening to On the Shoreline again yesterday, which again is a song that I like, and again, growing up near the beach, I can appreciate anything that talks about the shoreline. I, I think they made the right choice in not putting it on the album. I think it's it's a cool song with cool parts, it's but don't... It's a powerful track. Yeah, but it doesn't really add up to No, me. that is true. Yeah, I think it's... It, if it could have built to something else, it could have been another driving glass spike or fading lights. But it just, it has, it, it needs something else to it. And that's why it's a B-side. It yeah, but there are other like... songs that are not in the album. Right. Could have been Cat, but they're yeah. in the album. Yeah. <laughs> it might have had the workings of maybe a six or seven minute song or an eight minute song with some really good parts. Yeah. They're all kind of truncated into a short four or five minute song, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've got all those ingredients that could make up a better, longer song. But mm-hmm. because this one isn't developed and that one's not developed... Right. Kind of, I think I see why you would say yeah. it we've spoken about this uh, before about that B-side that could have been something else had there been maybe more time right. more enthusiasm for or it. more room on a record right. <laughs> you know that's the thing too yeah. you, they, they had to you know in the earlier days they were forced to make right. tough decisions a little bit more than um, you know right. we talked about that at the beginning of the podcast you know in the 90s you you didn't have to be so selective. Yeah. You get that sense, though, with the with the Spot the Pigeon EP. You could have easily have made an EP out of the, some of these tracks. Oh, sure. And had a second thing. Yeah. Right. And had a much yeah. more concise well, like, album uh, as well. Like with, yeah, exactly. I think if you if you take Never a Time, you know, maybe... Uh, Tell Me Why. Tell Me Why. Way and maybe Way of the World. Those, those three together could be, you know, of a, pe- of a piece, you know, that could work out. Yeah, because yeah. with Spot the Pigeon and the 3x3 EP, yeah. it, it wouldn't have been un, unknown for them to have gone that in that right. direction. exactly. I think it was a little less in this era of music that EPs really had kind of faded from, mm-hmm. from the scene. It's making a comeback now, the yeah, EP, though. Yeah, because it makes more sense, I think. You put more of them out in a shorter period of time. So, But yeah, so those are the bonus tracks. Anything more? Well, there's... I've, Sorry, I didn't bring it with me, but I had it from the time an official press packet oh. from Atlantic. It's really nice. It's got the No Son of Mine and all the images, a band discography, talks all about the new album. And in the write-up, it says, Tony, Mike, and Phil have written 15 new songs, and they're looking forward to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, well, 12 are on the album. Mm-hmm. You've got two bonus tracks. That's 14. Was there really a 15th song that has just I- never made it anywhere? Is that like the mystery song that... I think I remember hearing that there was, but that it's 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 like one of those ones, kind of like how they would prefer me and Virgil kind of would fall off the face of the planet, that, you know, they just don't need to talk about it that much. I think there's something like that for, um, for Calling All Stations also. I think we're ready to move on to putting what our favorite tracks are, and then we'll look how it stacks up against the pole. Tom's poll specifically. Mm-hmm. My favorite track, Fading Lights. Understandable. Uh, for me, it's Driving the Last Bike. Fading Lights. Driving the Last Bike. Mm-hmm. High five! <laughs> I, I'm, I'm 99% certain I voted in the poll for Fading Lights. I might have put Woo-hoo! Driving the Last Bike, but I'm not sure. Dora. Dora, yeah, come on, Dora. We need another women. <laughs> I think it's interesting that the the kind of emo- <laughs> that the emotional track, you know, yeah. fading lights. The three guys are like, oh, I can. P- 
I voted for that track. And the the one about get to work on the railroad. Right, the one about the railroad workers. The ladies voted. for. We want some manly so. men around us. Exactly. Right. So. All right. So what did the poll say? Tom showed you his poll. Well, I think with this one, the guys have it. Uh, the top track, which m- with more than twice as many votes as the second runner-up, was uh, Fading Lights. Woo-hoo. 38% of the vote. Right. Two tracks tied for number two with 17%. Driving the Last Spike Yay. and No Son of Mine. Okay. Uh, with down to about 8%, you got Dreaming While You Sleep. All right. 7% Living Forever. Mm-hmm. And rounding out the top five is Jesus He Knows Me with 5%. All right. Then tied for sixth place, we go all the way down to 2%. But I can't dance and hold on my heart. Okay. Uh, then with one percent tie, tell me why and since I lost you, and getting zero votes was a tie again. Never a time and way of the world. All right. Get the hey, get the Genesis goose egg. That is, that's some great validation. Because remember at the start of the podcast. Those last four tracks are the ones I would cut. Ah, <laughs> the <album>. yeah. <laughs> Thank you, listeners. <laughs> well, that's been fascinating. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about just with this at the end was the album art for this one, because I actually think that the album art for this album might be the best of any Genesis album. Then you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's put it out there. I I actually think that the whole package, I think the front album cover, and I think the artwork that goes along with with each track on here, I just think as a package altogether, this works great. I think it's one of their most cohesive, and it's definitely one of the more elaborate because you know in the past it was just like front cover maybe a picture of them and some like elements um barring like lamb lies down broadway which was a lot more intricate but as a whole i'm gonna refrain from commenting because i generally don't like any of genesis's uh album covers same here but i I actually thought that this but uh, this one was nice enough for me that i liked that i thought that was that was really good yeah and you know the 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 treatment of the the band name on this seems to be one of their most recognizable like the the, le, sure. the lowercase g and yeah. the it's backwards e kind of the it's logo the standard you know this. kind yeah. of uh look of the band but i don't think in a good way because i the artwork on this while i do like it it does kind of evoke feelings of like childness and childlike with the with the watercolor and as a child would write with a backwards e and a backwards n like there's some weighty, dark stuff on this album. And then to have the contrast of a very light and very, oh, kid-friendly album art, it just didn't seem to to go with it together. I mean, as a whole, as a package, is fine, but maybe for a different album. Yeah, the, the, the dark subject matter and the, the kind of the, ref, the sad reflection that is carried through a lot of the tracks, yeah, there's a disconnect um, between that and the actual artwork itself. So the artwork is a standalone. If I didn't hear any of the music, I'm like, oh, this is kind of nice to look through. And like I said, it's cohesive, mm-hmm. it's consistent. It is. It definitely stands out. If you know, It's different than anything they've ever done, which is always a good thing. Um, but yeah, when you get down to it and you think about the album itself and what they're trying to communicate through mm-hmm. music, this doesn't seem to really jive with me. Any other art comments? I, I don't know. I, I've always felt that the album cover since uh, since Duke onwards, well, Duke was probably, in my opinion, the last what I would consider to be good album cover. Everything okay. else seemed to be kind of focus group to death. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, I get the sense that 
Genesis from then onwards sort of like were given 80 covers. They were, came into the farm one morning, yeah. they, over a cup of coffee, they went, that one. <laughs> I, I think it's great that we can love a band so much that we're dissecting the typography of the band's name. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. And with that observation, I think we'll wrap up this episode of Tabletop Genesis. This is Mike Lord signing off. This is Eddie. Thank you, everybody. This is Simon saying goodbye. This is Stacy. Thanks for listening. This is Tom. Farewell. And we'll see you on the next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have the shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis. And you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes. Is the Phil Collins era of Genesis the best? I have no idea. Ha! But I do know you're listening to Progzilla.